Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Daniel Hill. Daniel teaches philosophy at University of Liverpool. We've had him on the show before. It's great to see you again, Daniel. Thank you for having me back, Crawford. We're talking today about a new book that Daniel has co-edited with Oliver D. Crisp of University of St. Andrews. And this is a, a, a book that's not by you, although it's edited by you, Daniel, isn't it? It's called Reason in the Service of Faith, The Collected Essays of Paul Helm, just published by Rutledge. It comprises 40 chapters, articles taken from across Paul's illustrious career. We'll find out about that in a second. Uh, And it contains everything from some fairly heavy-duty philosophical reflection to to, to material that's much more inflected by historical theological concerns. And we'll try and cover some of the breadth of, of the content of this book in our conversation. But I said to you, welcome back, Daniel, because, of course, you were on the show a number of months ago with Matthew Hart talking about your other recent book, Does God Intend That Sin Occur?, and if anyone wants to go and find out a little bit more about that project, uh, they might go on to the New Books Network archive, uh, type in Daniel Hill, Does God Intend That Sin Occur? And they should be able to listen to that and find out about it. But Daniel, it's great to have you back. And it's great to be able to talk about this book, The Collected Essays of Our Mutual Friend, Paul Helm. Who is Paul Helm? Well, thank you very much, as I said, for inviting me back. And before I answer that question, I should give a shout out, as they say, to my co-editor, Oliver Crisp, who can't be with us today. But he had the initial vision for the book, The Collected Essays of Paul Helm, and did the initial work to um, get the essays um, into rough shape. And I uh, came in late in the project um, and uh, sorted out the permissions and the abstracts and bibliographies and so forth and and put it into its final form. But he did most of the work, so most of the credit should certainly go to him. Although, of course, Paul Helm himself gets most of the credit since he's um, actually wrote all the 40 uh, chapters of the book. So you asked, who is Paul Helm? And Um, My one-sentence answer to that would be, Paul Helm is the leading Calvinistic philosopher in the United Kingdom. Now, Paul, I think, would be the first to say that's not a crowded field of being a Calvinistic philosopher. And it might be that some of your viewers and listeners will be thinking, well, what actually is a Calvinist? Maybe they know what a philosopher is. We could talk about that as well. But maybe some of them will be thinking, I'm not quite sure what a Calvinist is. Well, um, H.L. Mencken, um, an American funny man from 100 years ago, uh, came up with a supposedly classic definition of the word Puritan. And his definition of the word Puritan, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, is somebody haunted by the fear that someone somewhere is happy. And I think a lot of people have the same stereotype about Calvinists, that they're dour, 
fun-hating people that, um, you know, they're legalistic, they um, uh, don't um, have any pleasure in their own lives or anything like that. They're um, purely focused on, um, you know, very um, narrow, abstract, dusty, doctrinaire um, areas of life. Now, nothing could really be further from the truth as far as Paul Helm is concerned. Uh, he's a very jolly, jovial, um, uh, uh, life-loving kind of person that's uh, with a big personality and very friendly and warm and, um, you know, likes a good meal, a good drink, um, a good chat, all that kind of thing as well. So he's uh, full of bonhomie, very much re removed from the Calvinist stereotype. So what is a Calvinist really then? And in what way is Paul a Calvinist? Well, a Calvinist is somebody that follows the teachings of John Calvin, the French reformer, and the people t have picked out five of the key teachings of John Calvin um, to identify a Calvinist today. And they're, first of all, the total depravity of the human being um, since the fall, that is the, the fall of Adam and Eve. That is to say that um, since Adam and Eve fall, all human beings um, are such that they can't do anything spiritually good, anything meritorious off their own bat, then our natures are corrupted in that sense. The second principle of Calvinism is what's called unconditional election. That is the thought that God chooses to save uh, some people out of the total mass of humanity for his own good pleasure and not because of anything good in the people that he chooses. And of course, that follows from the first point, because there's nothing good in us that would warrant God's choosing one of us rather than another of us. The third principle of Calvinism is the so-called limited or particular atonement. That is the idea that Jesus died not um, to, as a substitute, not for the whole, not for every single member of the human race uh, individually, but rather he died for individually in the place of the people that were unconditionally chosen or elected um, as his um, chosen people. The fourth principle of Calvinism is so-called irresistible grace. That's the idea that when um, God turns people's lives around, turns Christians' lives around by um, indwelling them in the person of the Holy Spirit, that that is a change that can't be reversed. You can't go back to um, being a non-Christian once God's made you into a Christian. Um, and, that, and you can't kind of fight against it. And, and if God wants to... Um, uh, if God has chosen you to become a Christian, you can't um, resist him and say, no, I'm going to go my own way. My own free will trumps your grace, God. And then the fifth principle, in fact, I slightly mixed up the, the last uh, two in what I just said. Sorry, the fifth principle is the perseverance, the saints, which is that you can't unbecome a Christian. You'll continue under God's grace to the end of your days. Though, of course, we do have ups and downs in the way in which we manifest that in our lives. So those are the five principles of Calvinism, classically so-called, and Paul Helm adheres to those five, and he defends them um, in many of the chapters in, in the book here. And as I say, in my view, he is the Britain's, and has been for um, the past 40 years and more, um, Britain's leading Calvinistic philosopher, that is a philosopher that adheres to these five principles. Tell us a little bit about Paul's career. You've had a working relationship with him for some time, but he's established himself in this field as he's moved through various positions in various institutions, indeed on both sides of the Atlantic. 
That's right. Um, Paul was born in Blackpool in 1914, still very fond of his birthplace. He studied at Worcester College, Oxford, and after he got his undergraduate d degree in philosophy there, he went to University of Liverpool, which is actually where I teach, um, and he was a lecturer there for some 30 years, and then he moved from there to uh, become the professor of the history and philosophy of the Christian religion at King's College London, and it's that it's there where I met him. I studied under him for my PhD there. He uh, left King's College London after seven years um, uh, to become the J.I. Packer Professor of Philosophical Theology at Regent's College, Vancouver. Probably many of your listeners will know the name of J.I. Jim Packer, um, an Anglican uh, theologian um, who, again, crossed the Atlantic and is a hero of Paul Helms, even though Paul Helms isn't himself an Anglican or, and he wouldn't call himself a theologian either, he called himself a philosopher. Anyway, for, after four years in Canada, he came back to the UK and um, he was then professor for three years at Highland Theological uh, College in Scotland, in Inverness, just outside Inverness. And um, uh, after that, he basically retired, but he continued after retirement to study, uh, to supervise, sorry, students studying at the London Theological Seminary and at the London School of Theology. And he was also a visiting professor back across the Atlantic at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. His main influence, apart from his teaching, has been by his pen or computer keyboard, perhaps we should say these days. Uh, he's written a huge number of articles. So we've picked out 40 from this book, but there are a lot that we couldn't include. We, we it wouldn't allow us to produce a bigger book. We uh, 40 was the absolute maximum. Uh, so in fact, it's already um, longer than may, most of the monographs that they publish. Uh, and he published in all kinds of academic journals, philosophy, analysis, mind religious studies, and so on. Also many religious um, periodicals um, and popular ones too. The, the Banner of Truth, for example, some of your listeners possibly come across Table Talk, Evangelical Times, even some political um, reviews like the Salisbury Review. He was also a great conference speaker, um, and uh, he was in fact president of the British Society for Philosophy of Religion for a period, and for over a decade he was the chair of the Tyndale Fellowship Study Group in Philosophy of Religion. Um, spoke at also a number of popular level conferences as well as the academic ones, the Affinity Study Conference for example, Westminster Conference, the Chris Institute, the John Owen Centre, uh, the London Theological Seminary and so on. But also on the um, national and global stage, uh, he was participant in and witness of a couple of very important events. Um, for example, globally, he was a participant in the International Council on Biblical Inerrancies 1982 conference uh, on and statement about biblical hermeneutics. And, um, and, and within um, uh, Britain, he's uh, uh, played an important role in, um, in many aspects of church life. For example, he was the director of the trustees, or the chair of the trustees, I should say, of the Evangelical Library in London, um, and took a, a huge lead in putting the collection there online and um, in the um, 
procedure that you can actually borrow books by post from there as well, which is quite unusual for an academicish library. And he's even written, would you believe, um, some fiction. He's written a little Christmas story in a kind of slightly Charles Dickens fashion, but with a um, Calvinistic twist, which is also well worth reading. So I hope I've given the impression that um, he's um, not a sort of an ivory tower academic or perhaps he is that, but on top of that, um, he's lots of other things as well. Um, he's a, a very much a rounded human being who's managed um, not only to produce um, um, a dozen books, um, over 40 articles, and literally hundreds of book reviews, but also children and grandchildren and so on, as well as um, uh, playing a lively part in the local church. The way you describe him makes him sound like a force of nature, Daniel. And one of the really helpful things that this book does is to provide us with a bibliography, which runs to hundreds and hundreds of items. At the end, you mentioned there the dozen or 14 monographs, um, which um, range from 1973 through to uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, 2020. And although you described, or although you mentioned there that... that um, Paul would prefer to describe himself as a philosopher rather than a theologian. Some of these books are very theological in their inflection, aren't they? There's um, John Calvin's Ideas, published by Oxford University Press 2004. Calvin, A Guide for the Perplexed, published by T&T Clark 2008. Calvin at the Centre, again, Oxford University Press 2010. Paul is obviously someone who can think hard on a lot of different issues in a lot of different kinds of ways. I think that's absolutely right, Crawford. Um, he brings to everything that he considers the kind of stereotypical traits of a philosopher, he, logical thought, uh, clarity of expression, uh, insight and acumen, those kind of things. A, a keen eye on consistency, of uh, logical consistency, and of the objectivity of truth. So he's very much against uh, the relativism about truth that pervades much of academic discourse these days, but also with an historical sensitivity that not all philosophers have. Um, you mentioned a lot about John Calvin there. He's also written on three other Johns, uh, John Owen, John Locke, and Jonathan Edwards. Um, and uh, he uh, certainly knows his way about the history of Reformation thought in a way that uh, few other philosophers do. And I think that um, combined with the general philosophical ability that I've mentioned before is what really solidifies the assertion with which I, I began the, the show by saying that he's Britain's leading Calvinistic philosopher, indeed has been for 40 years and more. Now, as we look at this bibliography, which, as I said, runs to hundreds and hundreds of items, how do we step back from that? And indeed, from the, the 40 chapters and articles that are collected in this volume, Reason in the Service of Faith, just published by Rutledge, how do we step back from that to assess what Paul's contribution has been as a, as a thinker uh, across and around these various disciplines? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think it will it'll take a lot of time uh, to assess the influence that he's had on um, on the church and on the academy. Um, uh, I'm perhaps not best placed to um, make that uh, judgment because I'm you know, perhaps too close to the subject in this case, since I'm a PhD uh, student. So it's worth mentioning, perhaps, that um, uh, although I now call myself um, a Calvinist, I didn't call myself that and wasn't that when I was a student. So um, uh, his influence was uh, 
quite a subtle influence on me. Um, he you know, didn't say, right, if you're going to be my student, you've got to sign up to this, this, this. Quite the opposite. He was very happy for me to develop my own thoughts in the way that seemed good to me at the time. Um, but over the years, um, both my admiration for him as a person and my um, learning from him intellectually have gradually led me to the uh, Calvinistic uh, position that I described uh, a few minutes ago. Um, but I think that uh, as well as the um, precise details of his work, an, an important thing, I think, to, to stress uh, Crawford is the example of Paul Helm, because um, I don't know about you, but sometimes, and maybe some of your listeners have found this, um, among the uh, Calvinistic uh, believers in the church and maybe the church more generally there's a suspicion of philosophy and the idea is that um, somehow it leads one away from God and away from um, dependence on the Bible as the touchstone of Christian belief and um, Paul Helm is a, uh, a living example that shows that that's not always the case um, Paul is somebody that's still very much affirms the Bible's touchstone of his faith, and yet he's able to think deeply and philosophically about the many issues that are raised um, uh, in the Bible about the Christian faith, some of which um, we could talk about now. So, for example, the book talks a lot about um, uh, you know, God and time, the relationship between um, God and time, it talks about the objectivity of truth. Some of the articles are about the place of the scriptures in our belief systems. Predestination and free will is one of his favorite uh, uh, topics there, and so on. So there's, and all these arise in one way or another from uh, consideration of the Christian scriptures. One of the big themes in the book is the theme of meticulous providence. Mm. What is meticulous providence? That's a great question. Thank you. And as you're absolutely right. That's a theme that's very close to um, Paul Helm's um, heart. He once described himself, by the way, as um, a high but broad Calvinist. And the um, broadness meant that he wasn't narrow-minded. He's, he's uh, very much open to um, uh, responding to other people's points of view. Um, but he was a high Calvinist because he had a very deep and convinced belief in um, particularly meticulous providence. This is the view that um, the providence literally means um, uh, God's foresight, but uh, it's used by theologians in a slightly extended sense to mean the way in which God orders um, the whole of reality. And meticulous providence means that God orders every single bit of reality. So every single thing that happens, whether it's a, a sparrow falling from the sky or a hair on my head turning grey, as many have done. Um, every single one of those events is ordered and ordained and willed and intended by God. It's all part of his plan, in other words. And that's not, that's a, a classic Calvinistic doctrine, but quite a few people will dispute that these days. Um, Paul, in many of the articles in this collection, um, tries to defend that doctrine. Um, not so much in this collection here from the scriptures. He does that elsewhere, but we're focused more on his philosophy here. But he defends against philosophical objections. People might say that's not fair, for example. It's a very common thing that we hear. And he um, tries to show that that philosophical objection fails, that there's, you know, there's no substantive conception of fairness that um, that, that uh, doctrine fails to satisfy. 
the the city of meticulous providence of course then relates to disputes about the freedom of the will and yes. that of course was the topic of i think paul's most recent monograph which came out in 2020 a very interesting book which engages with debates uh, in early modern historical theology and beyond um but that's a theme in the book as well this theme of the freedom of the will how does how does paul respond to those kinds of issues that that debate throws up Thank you. Yes, um, it's important to stress, I think, by the way, that in what you said, Crawford, that this is a recent book. So he's carried on publishing really weighty stuff into his 80s. Um, and he may have hung up his pen or his, his keyboard now as far as publishing monographs is concerned. But he's still, you know, thinking as actively as ever about these uh, issues. And if any of your listeners were ever to bump into him in uh, rural um, Gloucestershire in the Cotswolds, then um, he would be happy to uh, have a long discussion over a pint or two of cider with, uh, with them about the issues raised here. Um, in On the subject of free will, uh, philosophy, the philosophers have taken, broadly speaking, two views over the centuries on this question, and they've got names. Um, so the uh, one view is called libertarianism, which is not the same as libertarianism in political philosophy. And another view is uh, called compatibilism. And the libertarian view says that uh, free will and predestination are not compatible. In other words, if um, God uh, predestines me to um, take a sip of water in a minute, then I can't be doing that freely. Contrarywise, if I freely take a sip of water, says this view, God didn't predestine me, couldn't have predestined me to do that. The compatibilist view, which is the classic Calvinistic position, and this is Paul Helm's view, is the opposite. It says, actually, free will and predestination are compatible. Both can be true. And in fact, Paul, of course, insists both are true. So um, if I have a sip of water in a minute that will be because god predestined me to do it if i don't have a sip of water that will be because god did not predestine me to do it he predestined me to do something else um we don't know at the moment which way god predestined me we'll maybe find out in a minute um if we make it that far to um uh, which of those two is, is is the answer whether god predestined me to have a sip of water or not but whichever it is, it doesn't rule out free will. That's the kind of classic Calvinistic tradition. Paul's defended this view against lots of philosophical objections. Um, people say, you know, it doesn't make sense. How can I be morally responsible for what I do if I'm not doing it, if I'm doing it under predestination and so on? And he's got very detailed answers to um, all those objections in the book. Very good. And as as you mentioned before, not only in the book, but also in his most recent monograph, uh, which people can dig out if, if they want to. Well, Daniel, it's been great talking to you about this book. It, I mean, it's been great having a, a, a taster, really, of what Paul Helm's contribution has been over the last 30 or 40 years of, of, pub, of his published work. Um, I've met Paul a few times. He's always got very funny stories, uh, sometimes about his tortoise, which must be about 50 or 60 years old now. Um, he once told me he had a dream about me in which I was going to write a book about John Bunyan. So I'm going to be very curious to know how that relates to his emphasis on the sufficiency of revelation, uh, whether that's uh, uh, some kind of foresight or, or even even worse. Who knows? But Daniel, 
as we as we come to the close of our conversation, it's been great to talk to you again. Obviously, we've been talking to you recently about your book with Matthew Hart, Does God Intend That Sin Occur? And this most recent edited volume you've done with Oliver D. Crisp, Reason and Service of Faith, collected essays of Paul Helm, just out with Rutledge. What are you working on at the moment or what might we look forward to talking to you about next? Well, as they used to say, and now for something completely different. Um, as it happens, um, my latest project is with a colleague of mine at the University of Liverpool, uh, Steve McLeod, and uh, with another former colleague of mine who's now gone to uh, Norway, uh, Tromsø, and uh, called Tilitani, and a research um, assistant we've hired called um, uh, uh, Tara Kusari. And we're working in um, the philosophy of criminal law on the question of entrapment. And entrapment is occurs when, let's say, a, a police officer, um, to give a, a particular example, might go to a suspected drug pusher and say, um, please sell me some drugs. The drug pusher says, all right, here you are. And then the police officer says, aha, got you, caught in the act, um, you know, you're a uh, um, coming with me to the police station and, and looking at a very long time in prison or whatever it is. And um, this is what's called entrapment. Um, and it's called entrapment because the idea is that the, the police officer in some way, um, so it's thought, entraps the uh, victim into committing a crime. Um, and we look at um, the phenomenon of entrapment and we look at the philosophy and the philosophical issues raised by, in particular, of course, the question of whether or not it's just. Um, your listeners might think, well, you know, it's obviously fine. I'll do anything to get drug pushers off the streets. Well, of course, drug pushers is only one example, but not everybody accepts in any case that the end justifies the means that just because even it might be a good thing to get drug pushers off the streets, but that doesn't necessarily mean that any um, way, shape or form of achieving that aim is justifiable. And in particular, this raises certain ethical questions about, first of all, whether there's lying and deceit involved on the part of the police officer. And secondly, um, it might seem a bit odd for a police officer to actually to ask somebody to break the law. But no, that's what happened in that little story. The police said, please sell me some drugs, asking the, the um, drug dealer to do something illegal. Normally, police officers aren't supposed to ask people to break the law. And it seems a bit odd and possibly incoherent or immoral for them to do so. And of course, the victim of entrapment, the drug dealer in this case, could say, well, hang on a minute, you know, I was only doing what you asked me to. How can you put me in prison for doing what a police officer asked me to do? Well, um, people differ on whether that's a, a good response from the a drug dealer or not. And that's the kind of question at which we hope to be looking in this big project. That sounds fascinating. Maybe we'll have you back onto the show to talk about how that might relate to divine providence, meticulous providence and the freedom of the will. I'll be delighted to come back and thanks very much for all your questions today. They've been, as usual, very insightful. And I hope that listeners will have got a sense of um, Paul Helm as a person and they'll be interested in in uh, looking at the, uh, the book. Um, I ought to say, by the way, that although it's largely... Um, previously published stuff it's useful because it gets them all to go in one place and there are also two or three new pieces that haven't been published uh, there uh, as well great well daniel thanks very much for your time today thanks for coming on to the show thanks for being willing to talk about the work that you and oliver crisp have done in editing this book reason and service of faith collected essays of paul helm just published by rutledge earlier this summer look forward to seeing it 
making a big impact uh, in theological libraries and philosophical libraries around the world. Daniel, thanks for your time. Take care. Thank you very much, Crawford. Thanks for having me. All and the best. Thank you to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast.